Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the believers gathered here. Thank you for your command that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need the flesh and blood presence of one another to encourage us in this life, to exhort one another as the day approaches. Father, we look at the saints gathered around us this morning and we see all different faces. We see people that we know well and people we don't know so well yet. And Father, this little assembly, this little gathering is a picture of what that last day will be like when Jesus Christ will come and we'll all be gathered together. The dead will rise first and then we who are alive will be gathered up together with him. And that last assembly, that last gathering together, Father, will we'll be with all the saints of all the ages. We'll be with our Lord. And this morning, Father, we thank you for this little picture of what that last day will be like. Father, we're gathered now to the Lord Jesus Christ just as we will be on that last day. We're gathered to God who is manifest in the flesh who took our sins on himself, went to Calvary, suffered, shed his blood, died, was buried, and raised again on the third day, and has ascended into heaven, where he's seated on the right hand of the Father. And we know that from there he will come to judge those who are living and those who are dead. Father, help us this morning to meditate on what that means. Father, I pray that you'd be with the message this morning. I pray that you'd help me to communicate clearly what you've laid on my heart and that, as Connor said, I would speak only what you have spoken in your word, Father. I pray that I would clearly teach from First Peter. pray for your spirit that you'd help us to quiet our thoughts and quiet our minds, quiet the distractions of the world and put that aside for a little while this morning and focus on what you have for us in your word. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Turn to 1 Peter with me, please. <clears throat> Peter's first epistle. We're going to be reading together verses 13 to 16. First Peter 1 verses 13 to 16. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word here. Thank you for your servant Peter and this letter that he wrote under your inspiration, moved by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you'd be with us today as we consider his command that we be holy and his instructions on following that command. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This morning I'd like to consider these verses here, 13 to 16, and Peter's charge that we live holy lives having concluded his introductory remarks in which he explained the nature of our salvation, 
Peter now turns our attention toward the outworking of this salvation. Up to this point, in the first 12 verses of his epistle, Peter has explained the great matter of our salvation. In verse 1, he opens by addressing the strangers scattered. These strangers didn't belong in the world. They were citizens of a far country, pilgrims and sojourners between this world and the next. Peter reminds his readers in verse 2 that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit worked together and across time and eternity to secure their salvation. The Father foreknew them, the Spirit sanctified them, the Son purchased them with his own blood. And then in verses 3 to 5, he points us to the heavenly inheritance that God has secured and reserved for us in heaven, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away. In verses 6 to 9, Peter encourages his readers that the trials in this present life are working for us a, a weight of praise and honor and glory that we will see at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then finally, last time we met together in verses 10 through 12, we saw Peter showing us that despite these trials, we are chosen of God to live in this age, at the end of all things, in the times which the prophets foretold and into which the angels gaze. Now in verses 13 to 16, Peter turns our attention from the truths about salvation to instructions on how we must live in the world in light of this salvation. In these verses, Peter tells us to walk in holiness as a people set apart and distinct from the lawlessness of the world. And he gives us three instructions that will help us walk the way of Christ in holiness. We might say Peter is turning to a more practical section of his epistle. I hesitate to use the word practical because sometimes we see a false distinction between things that are doctrinal and things that are practical. But our practice flows from our doctrine. Christian doctrine leads to Christian practice. The New Testament epistles all follow the same basic pattern. The writer explains certain doctrines and then describes the practical outworking of the doctrines he's just explained. We often see this transition marked with the word therefore, or in this case, wherefore, demonstrating that what follows flows out of what has already been discussed. And that's what Peter does here with this word at the beginning of verse 13, wherefore. He says, because your salvation has been secured by God and purchased by the blood of his Son, because you have an inheritance awaiting you in heaven, because you understand that trials are working for you, praise and honor and glory at this appearing, because God has chosen you to live in these last days, live this way. I want to consider with you two manners of walking that Peter lays before us. How is it Peter tells us to live in these last days? Well, first he tells us to avoid what he calls the former lusts. And second, he gives us the positive command to be holy. In verse 13, Peter gives us three instructions and, and, folk, uh, and that will enable us to walk in holiness. These three instructions are, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But for the moment, I want to pass over verse 13. Because verses 14 to 16 help us understand the goal or the purpose of the instruction in verse 13. And once we have the goal in mind, then we'll better understand the instructions in verse 13. When Megan and I uh, have house guests and we're teaching them a board game or a card game, I often start by demonstrating how a turn proceeds and I start explaining the rules and how you do this and that. But Megan often 
stops me and reminds me that the most important thing is to know what the goal of the game is. Do you need the most victory points? Do you need to empty your deck of cards first? You won't know what the rules really mean unless you know the point of the game. It's harder to understand the instructions if you don't have your goal in view. Well, with that in mind, let's examine verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I want to focus on two phrases in these verses. The phrase former lusts and the phrase holy, the word holy. First, Peter warns us against walking according to former lusts. The word lusts here doesn't simply refer to sexual sin, as we might sometimes think of the word. Instead, it refers to any desire or passion. Peter tells us that these lusts, these desires and passions are former lusts. Peter associates these lusts with a former time in which his readers lived, he says, in ignorance. Peter is referring to the pattern of life in which his readers walked before they began walking the way of Christ. It's the pattern of life in which the majority of this city walks today. Peter describes these former lusts in a bit more detail later in his epistle. Uh, just a few verses later in 1 Peter 1.18, he says this. He says, Ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers. See, Peter refers to this tradition that his readers inherited from their fathers. And note here that he doesn't just refer to biological fathers, but cultural fathers, fathers of culture, fa fathers of society. We've all received tradition from our fathers. But Peter identifies this tradition as vain or empty. And it's something that his readers needed to be redeemed from. This vain tradition, this empty tradition, would include false traditions in both the religious and philosophical realms. Peter's readers, whether Jew or Gentile, would have inherited false religious traditions. We know in Matthew 15 that the Jews had elevated the tradition of the elders over God's word, and Jesus condemned them for this. He quoted the prophet Isaiah to describe the Jews this way. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. In Matthew 6, 7, Jesus condemned Gentile religious traditions. He called the Gentiles' prayers vain or empty repetitions because the Gentiles thought that God would hear them if they spoke many words. In addition to false religious traditions, false way, uh, Peter's readers would have received false philosophical traditions, false ways of looking at reality and the world. Paul warns the Colossians in Colossians 2.8, Beware! lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. These false traditions were part of the system that Peter's readers were redeemed from. They're part of the former lusts that we must avoid. Peter further explains these former lusts in, in 1 Peter 4.3. Uh, he calls this former time, this past time, he calls it the time past of our life. And he says, in that time past of our life, we wrought, we worked the will of the Gentiles. Well, what's the will of the Gentiles? He says, we walked in lasciviousness or sexual immorality, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. 
See, in both of these texts, Peter is describing the former lusts, the false traditions and the sinful lifestyles that made up the former lusts. And these former lusts describe a lifestyle that's all too common in central Ohio, a mind enslaved to false patterns of thinking and the pursuit of fleshly desires, a life guided only by the passions of the one living it, a lawless life, a vain and empty life, a life without knowledge of the truth, ignorant of the truth. And back to our text in 1 Peter 1.14, Peter says, don't fashion yourselves according to that pattern. Don't conform yourselves to the desires of the world. Don't walk according to those former lusts as you did in your ignorance because you are no longer ignorant. We understand our state of sin, our state of lawlessness. We understand the blood that it cost, the blood of Jesus, the only Son of God, that it cost to redeem us from that lawlessness. And so how can we continue to live according to that lawless pattern. God's called us out of the world system to live as citizens of the next world. If we live according to the former lusts, we'll blur the distinctions between God's called out people and the world from which he's called us. We are to be a separate people, a peculiar people, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill. We are to be, in other words, a holy people. And that brings us to the next manner of walking that Peter describes. In verse 15, he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. To be holy means to be set apart. Set apart from common use for service to God. It refers to separation from the corruption of the world. God's people are holy because he has severed them. He has cut them out of the world. He has separated them. Peter explains here the nature and source of our holiness. He says, as he which hath called you is holy. Well, first of all, who called us? Well, God himself. We are to be holy as or in the same way that God is holy. Just as a son reflects his father's attributes, so we are to reflect God's holiness. The world's people walk in one manner, according to the pattern of lawlessness. But God's people have been severed from that manner of life to walk according to a different pattern, according to God's expressed standard of righteousness, according to his law. Peter also explains the extent of our holiness. He says here, in all manner of conversation. This word conversation here just means behavior or conduct. In every way in which we converse with the world, in word or in deed, we are to cultivate holiness. The manner of walking in holiness is, therefore, the mirror image of the manner of walking in the former lusts. Notice that this command to be holy and to avoid former lusts contains an implicit warning. You can live the Christian life in the wrong way. Remember, Peter addressed this letter to believers. But even as believers, we struggle with our flesh. Though we might want to walk in holiness, so often we're tempted to fall back to old habits, to former lusts. Peter's command that we be holy includes the implicit warning not to waste our lives with former lusts. We will, Lord willing, discuss this more next time we meet to discuss 1 Peter. But for now... 
we understand a little bit more of what Peter has in mind when he tells us to avoid former lusts and to pursue holiness. So now let's take a step back to verse 13 and consider the three instructions that Peter gives us in this pursuit. He says, Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope. We're confronted at the outset by this statement, gird up the loins of your mind. What does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? God chose to communicate in this metaphorical language. This is how he inspired it in the Greek. This isn't a quirk of the old King Jimmy here. Since God chose to inspire this metaphor, it's worth our time to understand what he meant and what he intended to communicate through it. In the ancient world, men and women wore long, flowing clothing. The loose, excess fabric would make it difficult to move quickly or perform certain types of work. Before beginning a journey or labor that the excess fabric might hinder, a man would make sure all the material was out of his way by wrapping it around his loins, around his waist, and he would fasten it with a belt. The Bible uses this phrase in several places, but for the sake of time, we'll look at just one. Turn there with me. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 says this. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Peter describes truth as the belt that goes about or around the loins to secure the loose garments of a warrior. The metaphor in our text, girding up the loins of your mind, means that we must remove anything that might hinder us for the work, for the journey, for the battle ahead. Because remember, here in Ephesians 6, Paul is describing the armor of God. He's describing the attire of a warrior. We, how exactly do we go about girding our minds? How do we go about girding the loins of our minds? Well, it's with truth. Truth is what can remove all that is loose in our thinking, all that might hinder us in the battle in front of us. Peter and Paul both use this phrase metaphorically. Peter tells us that we're to gird the loins of our minds. Paul likewise speaks of girding ourselves to fight a spiritual battle. In Ephesians 6, remember, he's telling us how to stand against the wiles of the devil. He reminds us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In a battle against seen enemies, flesh and blood enemies, we'd need a belt of leather. But in a battle against unseen enemies, in a battle against the rulers of the darkness of this world, in a battle of the mind, we need a belt of truth. Truth is the instrument with which we gird up the loins of our minds. Truth is the tool that allows us to remove anything that might hinder us on the journey ahead, in the battle ahead. And this makes sense because truth is most directly opposed to our adversary. Remember in John 8:44 that our Lord warned us, our adversary, the devil, is the father of lies. Jesus said, he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In direct contrast, the familiar words of Jesus from John 14, 6 say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth versus lies, the fundamental conflict. How will a mind girt with truth help us achieve our object, our goal of holy living? How will it help us avoid falling back into former lusts? Recall that we discussed how these former lusts include empty and false traditions inherited from our fathers. The truth of Scripture gives us the standard by which we measure all traditions, religious or philosophical. Are they good traditions? Some are. Do they agree with Scripture? That's how we know. Are they part of the false and empty pattern of the world's lawlessness? They must be measured. Many of the false philosophies that surround us, the cultural lies, many of these are nothing more than modern expressions of the same lies that have always plagued mankind. And they go back to the very first lie. We have it in Genesis 3.1. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Genesis 3.1, the very first lie. Right there in the garden, the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, said to Eve, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? From the beginning, he twisted God's word to cause Eve to doubt. Eve responded, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. But God never said that Adam and Eve couldn't touch the tree, only that they were not to eat the fruit. Eve's mind was not girt about with truth. She didn't know God's word. And so she was not equipped to see through Satan's twisting of God's word, and she was deceived. After Eve betrayed her own ignorance of God's word, the serpent pounced. Verse 4, he says, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. We see two fundamental errors illustrated here. First, the serpent holds himself out as an authority contradicting God's word. He told Eve to look to him for the truth. Second, he offered Eve the false promise of self-definition. He told Eve to look within herself for the truth. And how do we see these errors today? Many authorities seek to arbitrate truth for us. They would have us come to them, not God's word for truth. That's what Satan did. He held himself out as an authority on the subject of the tree and contradicted God's teaching with his own. God says you will die if you eat the fruit. You shall not surely die. In fact, you'll be better off if you ignore God's word and follow mine. This error presents itself in various ways today. Consider our culture's worship of experts. Some people are experts in their field. There's nothing wrong with that. If I'm sick, I go to a doctor. But when the expert begins to deal with issues of morality, issues to which God has already spoken, then the expert has no authority. Consider the scientist. Consider the term science as commonly used. This term science 
no longer refers simply to the process of observing and learning about the world around us. It's personified. Science says things. It's something we must follow. And the scientist is the high priest of science. He's the oracle who tells us what science says. And we must not question his judgment. If we do, we risk excommunication, or at least being kicked off of Twitter. But it makes sense that we can't understand truth without his help. After all, we're not biologists. And this doesn't only happen in the broader culture. Consider an example in the evangelical world. The error comes in this way. Some portion of scripture appears to speak clearly on an issue, but not so fast, the credentialed theologian says. If only you understood the original languages and the nuanced cultural context, then you'd see that the text means the exact opposite of what it appears to say. You don't read Greek and Hebrew? You haven't studied ancient Near Eastern culture at the graduate level? Well, you'll just have to take the expert's word for it. Do not give up your thinking to experts. Gird up the loins of your mind with truth. This isn't a charge to think less, but to think more. Examine everything in light of the truth. And if someone or some philosophy contradicts the truth, then reject it, regardless of how many well-respected academics or seminary professors disagree. Remember, it was the religious experts of Jesus' day who conspired to kill him. But, as Mark tells us, the common people heard him gladly. What about the opposite end of the spectrum? The other error we saw there in the garden, the error of radical self-definition. This is a species of the same error, looking for truth in the wrong place. Except this time, instead of looking to an outside source that's not scripture, you're looking within. This error is perhaps most grotesquely illustrated in the present day in the lie of transgenderism. That movement seeks to deny one of the most fundamental defining aspects of an individual. And the movement is intensely concerned with making other people participate in the lie by using and exchanging preferred pronouns. But this is nothing new. At its core, it is simply a modern expression of mankind taking the dragon up on his offer to define themselves, to defy God and become gods. These modern lies go all the way back. And it might seem overwhelming when you see all the lies and you think, do I have to learn how to address each and every one of these? But remember, these things are just the high top-level symptoms. They're just the modern expression. All of it stems from the same fundamental error, and that's looking for truth in the wrong place. When you look at the world and its pattern of lawlessness, its system of ignorant lusts, it's a system of lies that goes all the way down. Despite our unprecedented access to information, we live in an age saturated with lies. What is the simple believer to do in the light of such society-wide lies? Have your mind girt about with truth. Study this word of truth. Make a daily practice to read the truth, to listen to the truth, to talk about the truth with other believers and unbelievers. Saturate yourself with it so you can start thinking according to the patterns and categories of truth rather than the patterns and categories of the world's lies. Is there a more relevant charge today than to gird up the loins of your mind? Is there a clearer contrast today than between a Christian 
With truth girding his mind and the average worldling enslaved to the lies of the spirit of the age. This city doesn't need another church looking to be some sort of social event planning organization. This city needs to see a church, an assembly of people devoted to the truth and committed to walking according to the truth. This city needs the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This city needs to see us holding this book in our hands that tells us of a celestial city. It needs to see us with that city fixed in our eye and walking towards it in truth. And not just truth in one area of our life, but truth all the way down. We're not called simply to be holy in our thoughts or in a church meeting, but in all our conversation, in all our thoughts, interactions, and behaviors. And this brings us to Peter's next instruction. Be sober. This is closely related to the previous instruction. A man with a mind girt about with truth will likely be a sober man. And I question whether a man can be truly sober in the biblical sense unless he has his mind girt with truth. But what does the word sober mean? Peter's main focus here in this text is on sobriety of the mind. All three of his commands have to do with the mind. But that doesn't mean that sobriety of the body isn't also in view. The word sober is commonly used to describe the condition that is the opposite of being drunk. Rather than having the senses dulled by too much food and drink, to be sober means to be in control of your flesh. We can see quite clearly how this command to be sober would help us avoid some of the former lusts that we read about. Lasciviousness, sexual immorality, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries. These are all sins that deaden the mind. Sexual immorality. A man controlled by this isn't thinking. He's blinded by his pursuit of the flesh. Excess of wine obviously refers to not the temperate consumption of wine, but wine to the point of drunkenness. This deadens the mind. This command to be sober, to avoid things that deaden the mind, has a purpose. So that we might be watchful and vigilant. The Bible frequently connects sobriety to a state of watchfulness. Consider 1 Thessalonians 5. These are familiar verses. Verse 2 says, The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, at least for those upon whom sudden destruction will come. Paul continues in verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober. Twice here we're commanded to be sober. It's described as the opposite of sleep and drunkenness. We are not to have our minds deadened concerning the day of the Lord. We're to be watchful. It's connected here in our passage, very next instruction we'll consider is to hope toward that appearing, toward that day of the Lord. Peter warned us that the world's vain philosophers would try to distract us from the Lord's coming. Second Peter 3, 3-4, three through four, he says this, Knowing this first, that in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. We have these scoffers with us today. How do they walk? Well, it says here they walk after their own lusts. The pattern, as we read in our text, of the former lusts. What's their philosophy? Materialism. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. These scoffers think it foolish that we're looking for any return of Christ. They mock. Where is the promise of his coming? They think it's strange that we don't indulge our fleshly lusts, desires, passions like they do. We must have minds girt about with truth. We must remain sober, watchful, and vigilant. But though some in our culture scoff at our watchfulness and think it's strange that we don't indulge our passions the same way they do, they think it's strange that we don't participate in the same mind-deadening activities in which they do, there is at the same time in our culture some looking for awareness and clear-mindedness. Though they look in the wrong places, many in our world, especially young people, of whom there are so many in this city, 60,000 students at one university alone, there are so many young people on both the political left and the political right looking for truth. They understand that lies exist and that they've been lied to. They have a desire to know the truth behind the lies, to be aware, to be watchful. But without the truth, they can't have biblical sobriety. But we have this message that tells us to gird up the loins of our mind and be sober. It's the only real watchfulness, the only real vigilance, the only real awareness. And it isn't some petty political message that addresses only the circumstances of today. And we can share this message with those people. Like Paul on the Areopagus. Identify the common ground. Use it to show how the gospel is the only answer to the concerns that they have. You're concerned with issues of race? I agree that humanity has divided itself through sin. Can I show you where the Bible says that mankind was divided there at the Tower of Babel and how God promised he'd bless all families of the earth through Abraham's descendant, the man Christ Jesus? And can I show you how the Bible says that one day people from every kindred and tongue and people and nation will gather around this man Christ Jesus and praise him together? Because he came to redeem a people from every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And he's the only thing that can really break down the dividing wall of hostility between us. You're angry about all the lies. I agree our society is choked with lies. Can I show you what the Bible says about where all these lies come from? And can I introduce you to the man who called himself the truth? We have true biblical sobriety, having the loins of our mind girt about with truth. We have a message that not only addresses the circumstances of today, but the circumstances of tomorrow and the next day, the circumstances of all the ages. And that brings us to Peter's final command. He says, Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is closely connected with both of the previous ideas. We're commanded to hope for the grace that will be brought unto us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this grace that will be brought unto us? The resurrection of the body, freedom from sin, freedom from sickness, final glorification, a state in which we'll no longer struggle as we do now with these former lusts, but we'll be able to live free of sin, free of the world's lawlessness. How is it that this hope helps us live a life of holiness 
Consider a bride-to-be focused on her wedding day. Will she not devote great time and effort to planning that ceremony? Consider a student who keeps graduation in view. Will he not devote great effort to study for exams? So won't having Jesus' return in view help you focus on obeying his commands? Doesn't the anticipation of the king's return encourage his subjects to focus on matters of the kingdom? As we anticipate the return of the judge of all the earth, won't we give attention to how we live knowing, as we'll consider last time, next time, he will judge according to every man's work. Looking forward to that final appearing, that final revelation of the Lord, we will increase in holiness. John puts it clearly in 1 John 3, 2-3. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We don't know exactly what the resurrection will look like, but If we have the hope of the resurrection in us, then we purify ourselves even as he is pure. Doesn't that sound like Peter's command? But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. These three commands, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope are all closely related. The mind girt with truth leads to sober watchfulness of the end. The mind saturated with truth will understand what's truly important and will be vigilant and circumspect in anticipation of the Lord's return. In Luke 12, Jesus himself connects all three of these in one picture, what his return will be like. Luke 12, 35 to 37, he says this, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Gird up your loins. Keep your lights burning. We're to be watchful as men waiting, watching for their Lord. Peter's placed us, placed before us a goal. Be ye holy, for I am holy. He's given us three instructions. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for the journey ahead, for the battle ahead. Take up the belt of truth and use it to remove all distractions that would hinder you as you walk the way of Christ in holiness. Be sober. Don't allow the emptiness of the world to dull your mind. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Walk circumspectly. Hope. Keep your eye focused on the end. This struggle between the former lusts and holiness is only temporary. There's an end to it all. We have only a little while to walk this way of Christ here on the earth. Let us walk in holiness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant Peter and his charge to us to be holy. Father, thank you for these practical instructions that Peter's given us to prepare ourselves for this journey, this pilgrimage, this time of sojourning here on the earth. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would spend time doing these things thinking about these things and meditating on these things. Father, help us to seek truth in the only place that truth is to be found. Help us to seek truth in your word. 
Father, help us to have an eye toward those around us who are looking for truth in all the wrong places. Father, help us to have love as we share the truth with them. You've committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Father, help us as we reconcile lost sinners to you. And Father, please help us to be sober. Help us to avoid things that deaden our minds. Help us to stay focused on you and, and to hope toward the end of the world when Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Father, I pray that you would help us to keep that end, that goal in mind as we approach it. Help us to exhort one another and all the more as we see that day approaching and to not forsake this assembly of ourselves together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.